0: There's a reoccurring theme in a lot of um, the people I talk to, a lot of the stuff I write, a lot of the books I read, and it goes back thousands of years. And that is that satisfaction, contentment and happiness is largely an inside job. It's something that we have to nurture within ourselves, but not something that we're going to find outside of ourselves. The more we keep seeking and the more we keep looking for in life, the more material rewards we, we yearn for the less happy we become. Even if we achieve those things and get those things and you know satisfy that, that hunger initially, there is always more that we want. And so to find real peace and real contentment, we have to work on what is in here, in our hearts and in, in our souls, and readjust ourselves, our, our mental and emotional paradigms to understand that rather than waiting for something to happen on the outside to make us happy, We need to work actively to become happy and be happy on the inside. And then ironically, things start to fall into place on the outside. You know, if you go around stomping about all day in a really bad mood, the world will reflect that energy back to you. When you are in a good mood, you start smiling at people, they smile back. It's as simple as that. But, and there's a big but, and it's something that's been on my mind for a little while especially considering what's going on in the world at the moment right now we're seeing COVID-19 we're finally seeing kind of the world standing up and saying the way we treat other people is not good enough and it's coming to a head it feels like it's coming to a head anyway we're seeing protests on the streets of America seeing protests in Canada France UK all around the world and combined with this pressure uh, placed on us under lockdown from this kind of virus that's going around to nurture happiness is that intrinsically selfish or can we use this happiness to be more compassionate and to help other people too and how do we balance inner peace and inner happiness with the anger and the action that's needed to change the world, to confront injustice, and do all the things we need to do to make the world a better place. Because it's fine, you know, to seek peace within ourselves, but when the world around you is burning, you know, you need to you need to be motivated by that and inspired by that. So how do you stop yourself becoming too angry, yet still harness that? And similarly, how do you become assertive how do you maintain the necessary assertiveness to get ahead in life without um you know without slipping out of that um comfort of happiness how do you maintain that uh, that pressure on yourself while still seeking peace so that was a conversation i had with natalie Cogan. like i said she is the founder of happier she is the author of happier now, and she is a very interesting person. She has a background. She um, left, she escaped from Soviet Russia uh, when she was age 13, um, arrived in America, and chased the American dream for 20 years and found it wasn't making her happy. No matter how much she earned, no matter what she bought, no matter how far she progressed in her career, there was still this deep dissatisfaction and, and hunger within her uh, for some other kind of satisfaction. And that's what led her to find. Um, found happier so you can find out more about that and happier.com we get into a lot of um, topics we talk a lot about gratitude we talk about harnessing that energy that positive energy to create change and we talk about kind of avoiding becoming numb to both joy and and the necessary anger we need to uh, create momentum and change the world so I really hope you enjoy this episode of my podcast Uh, I got a lot out of it and uh, like I said check out Natalie uh, she is at happier.com. You can also find her, um, Natalie Kogan, N-A-T-A-L-Y-K-O-G-A-N on Twitter and on Instagram. So Natalie Kogan on Twitter and Instagram. Enjoy this conversation and um, I'll catch you at the end. All right, cheers. Hey. How are you doing?
1: Um, I'm okay. You know, we're in a... Something going on in the world, right? There's a lot going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it would be good to talk about that if we can about how to kind of nurture our happiness when it feels like the world's falling apart. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I It's so so interesting. So I've been doing. Um, I think I mentioned to you. I've been doing. I've done something like 60 virtual talks since. This oh yeah. Week. So in about 10 weeks, which is wow. more than I usually do in a year. Yeah. And the reason I just said it is I don't think I've used the word happiness because I feel like I have this little visual that I use for myself that it's really, really simplistic, that we're either below the line, at the line, or above the line. And if if we're at the line, if we're all feeling okay, like that's when we talk about happiness. I feel like we are all in the world, especially in the United States, I think everywhere, are all below the line. So I've really been talking to folks around emotional health and how do we... like how do we nurture ourselves and get back to a place or at least have some resiliency? Cause I, you know, the analogy I've been using is we're in a storm I and mean, in the United yeah. States it just keeps coming. It just keeps, it keeps coming, but everywhere. Remind yeah. me where you are. I know you're in England, but Yeah.
0: So I'm just between, I'm kind of between London and Brighton. So my day job is in London, uh, but obviously I'm locked down at the moment. So I, I live in the countryside away from everything. So, um, yeah. you know, the, my nearest neighbors are cows and, and you know. really
1: countryside. See, for me, yeah. we're, so I, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but I grew up in Russia in St. Yeah. Petersburg. That's right. And so I grew up in a huge city. And then when, after we came to the US, I went to a university, but then I, New York city was my American home. I lived there for 10 years.
0: I lived there myself for about a year and a half. Um, oh, yeah, just, yeah, it was, uh, and when was it? It was, um, I think I moved out there in 2002. Yeah. and I was there till about yeah, 2000. We're still
1: there. What right. were you doing there?
0: I was a magazine editor. So I used to work. Um, well, it was it's uh, It was a magazine called e-design. So it was all about product design, mm-hmm. mobile mm-hmm. phones. So it was a really lovely print magazine. It was really well-designed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was about web design. You know, the web was just, Becoming a really cool thing. Of course, then.
1: of course, no, we were still there. We moved, so I, now I live outside of Boston. We yeah. came here in 2004 when my daughter was three. She's about to turn 16, which I don't. know oh, I don't. Yeah. That's a. I know you have a two-year-old. Yeah, think that's right. You know, it's hard. 16 is hard in very different ways. But we moved up here because my parents are here, and you know, I look outside. We live right outside of Boston, so I look outside yeah. and all trees for me. So for me, this is rural, even though yeah, Boston, yeah. two minutes that way, but having come from New York city and St. Petersburg, like you say cows, I go, Oh my God. Cause I see trees. Yes. And I go, Oh, countryside, you know? Well,
0: well, this is it. I mean, until about three years ago, I, I was living in London
1: yeah.
0: and we moved to an area in North London where it was, um, it was actually quite green and we were like, wow, it's amazing. It's so beautiful yeah. to see so many trees and everything. And then we moved <laughs> out here and um, you know, just the sound of the wind and the trees and the birds singing. It's like, it's like, When I get the train into the office, when we're not under lockdown conditions, it's like you go from paradise to, you know, something out of, yeah, exactly. It's like your head, your head gets more and more. uh, Oh yeah. What do you,
1: what's your day job now?
0: So I spent, um, I started my life as a a kind of journalist, um, in kind of trendy magazines. Then I I spent 10 years as a professional photographer and now I've kind of gone back to writing and words and that sort of thing. And, um. Yeah, I have, I have a kind of, I have my own story. We all have our stories. But, uh, we all have yeah. our stories. Um, yeah, exactly.
1: I, I always love to know because I think our stories is what connect us, you know.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I was actually thinking about doing a podcast, of just kind of choosing someone at random off the street and just getting into their story because I, I really do, and I, that was something I, I sort of explored when I was a photographer. You know, everyone has a story mm-hmm. and it's... Um, well, you
1: know, uh, humans of New York, right? I mean, why Yeah, is humans- yeah. It's so brilliant, it's because it's not just a photograph, but it turns out everyone has a story. You know, yeah, something I've talked a lot about, I talk a lot about is, you know, I I have a story. It's been a journey yeah. to get here, but um I used to think I was really, really special, you know, in my yeah. suffering, for example. You know, I'm Russian, I'm a Russian Jew, I'm a refugee, because I used to really worship suffering. That was like a thing. Yeah, yeah, I, know I come from a family. It's very good at it. But my story was always that I was very special. That no yeah. one was like it. And that's why I kind of, even when I started doing all the research I've done, I was like, oh, no, 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 this doesn't apply to me. I'm very, very special in my suffering. Yeah. And I think we all have that a little bit. And then one of the, somebody asked me the other day for an interview, like, what's one of the biggest lessons I learned? And it's is so true. Like I, when I was going through my really difficult, dark time, one of the commitments I made was to stop being so polished and just to.
0: Before, yeah,
1: yeah. which you can imagine was not an easy thing to do as a CEO of a company called Happier on the front page yeah. next section in my orange mini. But that I mean, it's it's transitioned my life. And when I began to share kind of my journey and my struggles, the biggest thing I've learned is we all have so much more in common than yeah. we have that's different. It's and I still see that every day, right? Like the words are different, the facts are different, yeah. the circumstance all, all different. But what we share in common is so much grander and so much bigger.
0: Didn't Maya Angelou say something like that? You know, we have much more in common than we have different. Yeah. She, I like yeah. that I'm
1: observing something Maya Angelou said. That. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. You no, know, it's been just a huge lesson for me, you know, and it's interesting. I, um, my parents who live two miles that way, yeah. um, you know, obviously I'm an only child. We're, we're pretty close, but we're, you know, I come from a particular kind of family, typical Russian Jew. My father's a scientist, my mother's a pianist. Yeah. I was in math whiz. And I come from a very kind of intellectual, you know, you analyze everything. And also like my parents' tendency is always to look for what's different or yeah. what doesn't work, right? It's just, I think it's being, you know, when you're in, in, in an oppressed group, which they, yeah. we were in Russia, I think you develop that mindset kind of us against the world thing. And, you know, it's like my dad, like I, he and I committed to each other. During coronavirus, we only read scientific literature. So I like read to study and I'll send it to him. Yeah. And his response is always to find something to disagree with because he's, you know, yeah. A scientist. Yeah. And I noticed within myself that since I've kind of started to, you know, open up and really, I mean, I think to my parents, I'm probably a freak the way I live my life now. It's mm-hmm. been a huge, I write in my book that I feel like I'm betraying them all the time. I think it's part of my journey, but what I've realized, what's shifted in me when I realized how much more, how much more we all have in common is I tend to look for commonalities now first yeah. you know which to my russian jewish parental community is very anti-intellectual you know like if i watch something or read something my first instinct is to be like oh yeah this is interesting i agree with this and then i'll find so it's so interesting how i'm um, all to the point that i think it'd be beautiful to do something about people's stories yeah I think, so. I think that's how we find out just how like it gives us perspective on our own stuff and then we're not so stuck in like oh, I'm so unique and special in my story, like I can never escape it, you know, because it can be quite a trap.
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm going to start the podcast properly in a moment, but
1: yeah.
0: of all the people I've spoken to and all the stuff I've read and all the, um, you know, the, the people who have kind of gone through that struggle and then come out the other side, if you like. So you were unfulfilled. I've had other people have had um, kind of traumatic experiences. I've had my own experiences. And our, what we realize is actually... the Pretty much the same, and it's the same as the philosophers a thousand years ago discovered. It's the same, the, you know, the Stoics, the you know, the Native American, uh, the yogis,
1: and, and the Buddhists. Like that's my exactly. that's what I study, right? It's absolutely, an
0: inside job, you know. And it's like absolutely. it's like you say in your TED talk. It's you know, you can strive for wealth, you can strive for material happiness, yeah. but it ultimately, it has to come from in here. So
1: absolutely, and it's 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 so true. You know, I say because I do. um you know my dad's like i said half of me is very scientific i grew up no. like a serious you know i have so much respect for science my dad is like a triple phd he's one of those like crazy russian science like literally crazy russian scientists with yeah. a big beard and like um and so i you know i use a lot of research in what i do like when i work with companies and leaders but i often find not often most of the time when there's like a new study that comes out like oh you know gratitude does this or our brain does this it's like well yeah, the yogis have been talking about this for five thousand years. Or yeah, like, yeah, this is what Buddhists have, but you know, it's kinda it's like, like a, modern science discovering the things that was a kind of
0: universal people. truth, isn't there? Universal yes, truth. Yes. Kind of but, but,
1: but at the same time, you know, it's interesting. I um I am grateful for the Western research because the place I was coming from There was no wisdom for me. That I was so closed off anywhere below here. So it was only like research gave me access, and then I did the work. And you know, now I read a lot less of it, but so I'm grateful for it. But it's often it makes me smile when I see a new study, you know, about this in the brain. I'm like, well, yes, this is for ten thousand years. This has been known. Absolutely, we're catching Uh,
0: up. I'll tell you what I could do. This is all really interesting stuff. So I might just keep this in the podcast anyway. Um, but I think we need to do a little introduction, and I have a terrible—I have a terrible habit of talking too much mm-hmm. uh, when really I should be listening in, during these podcasts. So oh,
1: the interesting thing is a conversation. Well,
0: exactly, but um, but you know, it's it's all about trying to get glean wisdom from other people, and yeah. um, and I'm hoping to speak—you know—I'm speaking to you, I speak to other wise people. Um, but Natalie Cogan, thank you so much for being my guest on, on my podcast.
1: Well, You're so the founder. Thank you.
0: You're a founder of a company called Happier, mm-hmm. and you have an interesting backstory. So you came to America when you were age 13 from Soviet
1: Russia yeah.
0: uh, as a refugee, and you worked very hard to make a lot of money, but then you found you were unfulfilled. So I'm going to leave it at that. And then if you could fill in a bit of your backstory and then tell us how you got to where you are now.
1: Of course, and I'll try to do all of that in a few minutes. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, Yeah, so I did, um, I would say I grew up in the former Soviet Union. If my daughter was here, who's 16, yeah. she would say, Mama, you haven't really grown up yet. So I spent the first, a third of my life in the former Soviet Union, and yeah. we were Jewish, and Jews were persecuted at the time. Um, and so uh, we left, and we had to leave everything behind. So I think we were allowed like $600 and a couple suitcases per person, and that yeah. was it. And we spent a couple of weeks in refugee settlements in Vienna, um, and then a couple of months in Italy. And this was all set up by the Americans to apply for refugee status. And um, and then we came to the U.S. We were very grateful to get refugee status and um, began my American dream and public housing and the projects and welfare and food stamps. Very grateful to be here, but also completely scared and overwhelmed. I think at 13 you don't want to move across the street, and here I was. I spoke almost no English um whatever English I spoke came out with a horrible accent and I always say this remember how kind we are in eighth grade we're just a picture of compassion (laughs) so you can just imagine what those kids did with me um also I didn't I had like two outfits to my name it was just a terrible teenage situation and I actually remember I was so miserable um and I was so upset about being miserable because like I I wanted to make the most of this American dream that I um I really was consciously looking for something that would make me feel good. And the only things that were making me feel good is like when I achieved something. I remember the day they moved me into normal English, not remedial English, because I could now speak enough English. You know, I remember when my grades started to get better. Right. I remember graduating from my high school third in my class, which was a huge achievement having you know come as a refugee. And I kind of formed this idea of I'll be happy when I achieve a lot of things, make my parents very proud, kind of honor the struggle that we all went through by, you know, becoming really successful, taking care of my family. I really wanted to buy my parents an expensive car that was like a thing, you know, because they gave up, we gave up everything to come here. And so for, let's say, 20 years, I chased the dream. I really always, I firmly believe that happiness was just like, if I just did one more impressive thing, I could get there, you know, and I had a very, very impressive career and life from the outside. I graduated first in my class. I went to work for McKinsey, a very, very famous consulting firm. Actually, fun to know that the first place I worked for McKinsey was in London in their oh, office, Piccadilly yeah. the yeah. um, Circus, yeah, uh, Circle. Um you know, I, at 25, became a managing director at a venture capital firm in New York. There was fewer than 6% women in venture capital, and I was 25. Yeah. I started companies. I was in the press, on TV. I mean, just, you know, I married my college sweetheart, whose name is Avi. It's going to be 23 years that we're together, I think. You know, I yeah, had a beautiful, beautiful daughter place. named Mia, who's turning 16 in a week. We lived in New York City. It was my dream. I bought my parents a Mercedes because I could, and it was just... I mean, and the thing is, I don't want to lie, whenever I did achieve something, it felt really great, really, really great. But then it was just like a bubble would just pop and I didn't feel good anymore. And because I equated happiness with achievement, my answer was, uh huh, I'm just not achieving enough. I'm not doing enough. And very quickly that became, I am not enough. And so the only answer I had was, okay, do more, try harder, um, be harsher towards myself. I kind of, You know, I I had this relationship with myself for most of my life, kind of like an army sergeant. You know, I I treated myself with absolute lack of kindness and compassion, including like the basics, like no sleep, no enjoyment, just like go, 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 because I really thought eventually I would get to this euphoria, you know, and everything would be amazing. And uh, well, two decades of this, um, as you said, not only did I feel unfulfilled, but it was also, The reality that, you know, all of these human emotions that we have, um, including difficult emotions like feeling scared or having fear, doubting yourself, I had them, but I never allowed myself to actually feel them because that was wrong. Like if you allow yourself to feel doubt, you're never going to get to the land of happiness. And so for two decades, I just sort of stuffed all my emotions and just try to keep them at bay. And then I got to a point where I just couldn't anymore. And it was, um, you know, I still don't have the right words for exactly what it was, but I and got to was a really a, dark was yeah. an
0: episode or a kind of, um,
1: it, it was a sl- you know, people ask, it was a slow burn that then was a crash. You know, I completely burnt out just cause, I mean, I don't think I slept more than four hours for 20 years. And I really mean that I, it's a horrible thing. I still struggle with sleep, but I, um, you know, when we treat ourselves with that kind of harshness, it's not free, right? It has an effect. And so, I all of these difficult feelings just spilled out and I felt so empty like I hadn't gotten into the euphoria and I was also completely burnt out and this is when you know I wasn't going to give up because I had a young daughter. Um, I didn't know the path. I had no no understanding of what to do but my father's a scientist and so I grew up with a very very like a lot of respect for science and um, it was by accident or the grace of the universe. I don't know which one you pick. I actually ran across um, research on emotional well-being and happiness in the appendix of a book called Delivering Happiness, which is written by Tony Shea, who is the founder of Zappos. Um, and he wrote this book about the journey of Zappos and how he built the company on the foundation of making customers happy. He famously used to say, Zappos, which is now owned by Amazon, Zappos is not in a shoe business. We're in the business of making people happy. And it turned out that he was really really into happiness and emotional health research so in the appendix of the book there were all these studies mentioned well so i said let me let me read them and i um uh, it was incredible to read the research because it it ran completely counter to every single thing i believed so two things i just want to mention is the first i treated happiness as a prize it's a prize that we get if we work hard enough achieve enough make enough money you know do the things on the outside, then we get happiness. And all this research in psychology, sociology, neuroscience showed the opposite. It showed that actually, if you cultivate your emotional health in the present moment, it makes you more creative, more productive, more successful, uh, more helpful to others. And actually, research shows if you cultivate your happiness in the present moment, you actually make more money over your lifetime. So happiness turns out to be uh, an input into a great, meaningful life versus an output. Well, that was crazy for me and the other was i um and this was really really hard to let into both my head and my heart that happiness had very very little to do once you have a basic you know basics are covered right happiness had very little to do with money or anything on the outside but it was all about uh, practicing things like gratitude or kindness or self-compassion all the things on the inside and that was absurd to me as well but those are those are the mindset shifts that eventually you know there's a great quote i think it's by ram das but that suffering is sandpaper to happiness Mm -hmm. and i think that um i love that quote because i think that i um you know i come from a great tradition of suffering russian jews were awesome at it women in my family are even more awesome at it um, that I think I got to a place where I I couldn't cope with it anymore. And so I had to open up to something that otherwise my mind was closed to. And that was the beginning of a very new journey for me. And I'm not saying my skepticism went away overnight. It took years and years and years of a lot of inner work, but I did find a, a different way to live and a different way to do my work. And, you know, to answer any listeners, the question I often get at this point is, well, but you're still seem pretty ambitious and you're building this company. You're trying to teach like the world, emotional health skills. I am no less ambitious, but my joy and my happiness and my emotional health no longer hang on my achievements. I practice them every day and I actually believe they have fueled my ability to do meaningful work in a even greater sense than I ever could through just pushing myself.
0: How do you balance that, that idea of, because you know, we, we have this striving and I've, I've been there, I've experienced it. You know, I've been in a position where, um, I couldn't get the job I wanted my CV. I thought my CV was amazing. My LinkedIn profile was great, but things weren't happening. You know, I, I, everything on the outside, I, I was trying really hard and I was pushing yeah. and pushing, but yeah. couldn't quite get where I wanted. And inside I was miserable. But mm-hmm. then when I started, you know, the introspective journey or whatever, um, things started to fall into place. Mm-hmm. How, how do you balance that kind of, You know, when when you have gratitude and you're happy for where you are, how do you keep striving? How do you keep pushing for better? You know.
1: Yeah. So I love the question so much, and there's so much I want to say. Um, uh, I'll say a couple things before I get to gratitude. So one of the things, and I, you know, and this has been a real journey for me to say what I'm about to say, but because there isn't research I can cite on this, but. Everything in our world is about energy, right? My father is a physicist and even he agrees with me on this Even though he doesn't agree with me on most of the things you and I are talking about Um, Everything is energy and the thing that I didn't understand for so much of my life is that the energy with which We do things from doing an interview with someone to writing a presentation giving a talk whatever it may be it is felt by the people on the other side and if our energy is negative, exhausted, frustrated, self-flagellating. Well, that is the energy that comes through our work. And um, the people on the other side may not be able to have those words. They may not be able to describe what they're feeling, but uh, we share it. And so doing things from a place of um, I'm horrible, I'm awful, I feel awful about my life, and trying to do something from that place, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really, really hard. Because the feeling that, you know, I have this idea that I talk a lot about to leaders. We do a lot of work with companies and leaders, this idea of an emotional whiteboard. So before, as you imagine, you're going to a meeting and as you walk into the meeting, the first thing people see is this whiteboard that you're holding and how you're feeling is written on it, whether you want it or not, because we are social beings. We're very connected. We sense each other's emotions. Emotions are absolutely contagious, good and bad. And so we communicate with our energy and our feelings first and foremost, and it's not possible to overcome that. And so that's kind of, that's been a huge discovery for me. And this is where gratitude comes in and the striving. So I will tell you, I had the same fear. I really did. I had this fear that if I became satisfied with my life right now, why would I ever want to improve and grow? Like, why would I ever want to work really hard? And I really, really hung on to that. Like, it was a huge impediment for me. And with gratitude, I actually ended up going on a 30-day gratitude experiment because I could not allow myself to believe that it could work. Like, that was too much of a jump. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do a 30-day experiment that I can handle. Every day I'm going to write down three things I'm grateful for and have one grateful interaction with another person. And I announced it to my family fully certain that it was going to fail. And then I could really be stuck in my story of, see, it doesn't work for me. I am too intellectual and complicated and sophisticated. And very, very quickly um, I was learning I was wrong because here is the thing. So for the first thing is there is no research that shows that people who practice gratitude work any less or are less motivated. It's actually quite the opposite because when we practice gratitude, what it does is it elevates our emotional well-being. We feel better. We feel centered. We feel joy. We feel a richness in our life. We feel um, more resilient. All of those things are necessary ingredients for any kind of meaningful achievement, right? Because any kind of meaningful achievement is difficult. It's going to have obstacles. And when we come to those obstacles with uh, a tank that's been fueled with gratitude and other skills, when we come to them with a sense of emotional well-being and a richness of our life, we have more to, to give. And gratitude turns out to be actually one of the key components in motivation, in productivity, in creativity. Um, Creativity is something um, I've studied a lot just because I've always been really creative. I paint now, like that's my huge creativity. But um, there's a lot of research that shows that when you begin, when you have a meeting and you begin with gratitude, people in the meeting are more innovative and creative. They literally come up with better ideas because gratitude allows us to draw upon all of our reserves because we become aware of what we have and so um it's an interesting intellectual argument like will feeling grateful for my life prevent me for achievement but it turns out to be quite the opposite
0: so something as simple as you know you go into a meeting and say thank you for coming can actually start the energy going I mean, in the yeah, right
1: direction. but um so uh, I'm becoming known as the happiness lady that says, don't say thank you. So it's not that. So thank you is gra- is not really gratitude. Thank you is being polite. And I think it's wonderful. I just want everyone to know, please continue to be polite. Yep. But genuine expression of gratitude um, is more than a thank you. It's really um, what we want to do when we express gratitude to others is we want to tell them why we appreciate them. We really want to get specific because... That is a way for us to connect to that and the other person to actually acknowledge something. Oh, I really appreciate this about the other person. And that has the positive effect on the other person. There's actually a psychological term for this. When we are um, on the receiving end of gratitude, we feel socially valued yeah. and feeling socially valued is one of the key, key drivers of motivation, resilience, creativity, and more. Um, and so when we express gratitude, we wanna be specific. So we wanna say not, Chris thank you for interviewing me but Chris I'm really grateful for your really thoughtful questions right look yep. it's hard not to smile right it feels good because what I happens nice, in that, yeah. yeah well what happens in that moment is you feel acknowledged as a human being ultimately all of these skills we're talking about and I do talk about them as skills because we can practice them mm. they're not magic um, Ultimately, what I believe they do is they just allow us to show up as more of our human selves without all of the stuff that goes in front and to meet people as their human selves and so uh, That's that is really powerful So yes, if you come to a meeting and you start by sharing something you are grateful for about someone else you are literally increasing the innovation and creativity in the room because uh, people feel good hearing gratitude and when we feel good um research shows we perform at the highest level of our potential across every metric and it 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 doesn't seem real because it's so simple but most of that i think you know maybe that's a big lesson that i've learned is some of the hugest shifts and changes come from really really simple things but it's our regular intentional practice of those things that makes a difference
0: well i mean in, in your ted talk you you talked about life being made up of moments and paying attention to those moments. And, you know, it's, it's a very, um, commonly quoted, I don't know who said it, but, you know, eventually you realize that the, the small things were the big things, you know, throughout life. And I've had a gratitude practice that I've been doing now for like three or four years. So mm-hmm. every, every night I write or every morning, I write down three to five things I'm grateful for, but it starts to go a little bit stale. It becomes just, it becomes like saying, thank you for coming to my meeting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: you have to kind of really engage in, like you're saying, get specific and, and, you know, think about actually, I'm saying thank you for the roof over my head, my dinner, you know, yet again, but actually what was the thing today that made me feel really good? What was the thing that really connected with me?
1: Yeah. Um, and I think there's a couple practice. other things I just want to about, say about practice and gratitude. So the more specific, the better. Um, And one of the ways to do that is just think about the why, right? Why are you grateful about the roof over your head? Why are you like answering that question makes it more specific? Um, Smaller, the better. Um, You know, I often ask my audiences, you know, when I uh, speak, I say, okay, would you share something you're grateful for? And they say, oh, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my health. Those are wonderful things. But they are too general for our brain to really capture. So it's like nothing. So um, I have this analogy of kind of be a gratitude archeologist, like dig, really zoom in and look for the small specific things in your life. And the other thing is I do think it's really important to practice gratitude maybe in different ways. So maybe one day you ask yourself, um, what is a regular comfort? That in my life, that I am grateful for. Maybe another day your gratitude is about um, another person, right? Maybe another day your gratitude is really savoring an experience. And so I think opening up our eyes to the fact that we can practice gratitude differently is really important. Um, uh, you know, one of my favorite gratitude exercises was actually inspired. So a couple of years ago, I went to Tanzania. Um, to teach all of these skills, including gratitude at a school for girls there. It's an amazing place, it's called the Sega Girls School. And these girls come from absolute poverty, Chris. I mean, I, I've i had difficulties in my life. You know, I was a refugee, like I know what, I've never seen poverty like that. And the school is run by an American nonprofit, Nurturing Minds. And so they get these girls from just absolute poverty and they give them a great education and a boarding school, it's just wonderful. So, I was talking to them about gratitude, and then I, I said, Okay, we put these huge pieces of paper all around their outdoor lunchroom, and we gave them markers, and they were so excited because they'd never had a marker before. Um, and I said, Okay, go write what you're grateful for, and the adults left. And after about half an hour, they left, and we came back. And it was one of the greatest lessons in my life, Chris, because here I am, I teach gratitude, among other things, for a living. As I was reading these posters, I realized what these girls are grateful for are the things you and I absolutely never even think about to be grateful for. I mean, they wrote things like, I'm grateful for having a chair to sit on in the classroom. yeah. Because in most Tanzanian schools, you have to carry whatever you're gonna sit on and the school have chairs. Or I'm grateful for peanut butter. Or I'm grateful that my teachers like to teach me. And it was just, it was one of the the, the moments I cherish most in my life because what I realized is, these girls are grateful for these very basic things because to them, they're not basic to them. These are extraordinary things. And I created this practice for myself that I just want to share, that I use all the time for gratitude. I call it, imagine life without this and it's incredibly simple. So pick something in your life that you use all the time or that is there all the time, you know, food in your fridge or turning on the faucet and water comes out or you're wearing glasses so you can see. And, take a moment to imagine your life without it. Like literally, actually imagine, you know, uh, you come to the faucet, there is no water, or you open the fridge and there is no food. And that's a really, really powerful practice. I write about it in my book, I call it Imagine Life Without This. So that's another way to practice gratitude is actually to um, imagine what it would be like without having some of these blessings and regular things in our life, because that actually helps them be a little more extraordinary.
0: I think so, and uh, I think sometimes when life is being a little bit unkind to you, and you're working very hard, you're exhausted, and you're you know you're trying to maintain this positive outlook and this this kind of um, uh, gratitude, you know, this gratitude practice, whatever it is, you know, sometimes to remind yourself actually, you know, the simple things are very important to me, and they are, and they you know I might not have got that pay rise, or I might not have been able to afford the new car, but thank goodness I've got clean water and I've got food in the fridge and I can Absolutely where yeah. I'm going with my glasses you know
1: and it's so important to do you know I talk about gratitude Gratitude is one of the greatest um sources of resilience when we're going through something really challenging which is all of us right now yeah. um and I just want to I want to geek out on science just for a moment because it's really helped me understand so our brains all of our brains are naturally much more sensitive to anything that's wrong or anything that could be wrong and Um, It's a it's a it's a u-shaped curve bell-shaped just like everything else So some of our negativity bias are more sensitive than others But the reason the brain has is that way because danger usually comes with negative stimuli And so our brain is constantly trying to protect us from danger. So it's literally looking out for anything that is wrong well, it's kind of a problem um, for feeling good um, normally and which is why gratitude is so essential but particularly when we're going through a difficult experience the negativity bias gets even more sensitive because our brain is interpreting the negative experience as danger so you can think right now actually it's, it's really important perspective to have all of our brains are perceiving the situation we're in as imminent danger we're actually dealing with a pandemic with a dangerous virus but beyond that the brain is looking for what could go wrong in everything and so That makes it really easy to kind of spin out in a very negative thought pattern because there's so many reasons the brain can come up with. And that's why practicing gratitude when things are challenging, it's so important because when amidst the challenge, right, it's not that you deny that things are challenging, but amidst it, you say, well, things are difficult, but I am grateful for. It reminds your brain that this challenge is not everything that there is more to your life and that becomes a really powerful source of resilience because it literally prevents the brain from being stuck in that negativity spiral. So the gratitude becomes the fuel we need to keep going.
0: It's funny, you talked earlier about um, energy and everything being energy. And I, I really think that, like you said, life reflects your energy back to you. Absolutely. So, you know, if you, if you have a positive, upbeat energy, you smile at people, they smile back, you know, and, and life, has a way, you you know, you tune into opportunities and you start to see, I was out in the garden the other day and I I saw some wild strawberries, which I'd never seen before. You know, and that's just a little um, example of just tuning into different things around you. And we have to protect that energy. You know, you've talked about um, self-care before. You talk about, you've got your kind of five points, acceptance, gratitude, intentional kindness, the bigger why, which we've already spoken about, and self-care. Well, my previous podcast was um, an interview with uh, Cheryl Richardson. And she oh, yeah, the, of
1: course.
0: Yeah, um, yeah she's very much about self-care. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have to protect our energy. And we're going through some interesting times at the moment. And I felt my energy really being affected um, by what we're seeing on the streets at the moment, um, which is, I think, a symptom of 400 years of um, oppression and and negative negativity towards um, people who... don't look like me who aren't middle middle middle-class white men um and it's you know I want to look after myself but also I want to take seriously what's happening and hopefully be part of the solution so how do you balance that kind of I don't don't want to say selfishness but how do you look after yourself and also look after the world at the same time
1: yeah it's um It's a really important question. I've been talking about this a lot in all the talks I've been doing. And, um, you know, for most of my life, the idea of self care or self compassion was ridiculous to me because, um, well, it felt selfish and indulgent. And uh, I I really embodied the identity of a martyr. You know, I was a martyr mom, right? Like, I worked full time, crazy career, but like at Sunday, 2 a.m., I'd be there making my daughter homemade meals for the week. And I was exhausted and over, but like I was doing it. I was, I had this actually, my ego was very happy with this identity. Look how much I'm suffering for you, you know. Or as a leader with my team, I always like, I thought if I just care about my team, it doesn't matter how I feel. And this was actually one of um, the hardest kind of things for me to face because I was so, my ego was so happy with this martyrdom. It was so happy to have me suffer. And I didn't realize it was an ego trap, right? That I actually was enjoying it in a very sick way. But I also know I'm not alone because I, when I share this, everyone nods, right? Yeah. So here is the hugest turning point. And this is, I actually end every talk on this slide. I've done thousands of talk. I've never ended it on a different way. You cannot give what you don't have. Yeah. You cannot give what you don't have. So many of us think we are an exception to that rule, but we are not, right? So if we're feeling exhausted, overwhelmed, low energy, punishing ourselves, we do not have a lot to give to the world. The thing that I didn't want to face is when I served those amazing homemade meals to my daughter, they were served with a very big side of stress, exhaustion, snappy mom. I didn't want to acknowledge that. I really wanted to just focus on the soup, but she had to eat all the other stuff. My team at work, They had to face my stress, overwhelm, all of that. I wouldn't acknowledge it, but they definitely felt it. And so the least selfish thing that we can do is self-care and self-compassion. It is not a luxury. It is our responsibility to every single person we care about and every single cause we care about because we truly, unless we um, nurture our own emotional health and well-being, we cannot show up. For the people in our lives, for the causes in our lives, in any meaningful way. And um, it's a really, really powerful thing to learn. Um, you know, I, I didn't learn it intellectually. I learned it because I got to a place in my life where I could not function. I had beaten up myself and neglected my emotional well being and physical well being for so long that I just came to everything in my life came to a screeching halt. And a huge reason I do what I do, part of my bigger why, is. I wanna teach these skills and bring these messages and the science and the wisdom to as many people as I can before they have to get to that point because that's a really hard lesson to learn. But that's, I think, one of the really important things to just be honest with ourselves about, right? Like if I am beaten down and exhausted and I'm neglecting myself, am I really showing up as my full and best self to the people in my life, to the causes in my life? If we're honest, the answer is never yes if we're honest about it and that's the level of inner work that's required to recognize that investing our self-care and self-compassion is our responsibility. It's not a luxury.
0: Can you, can you apply this to, to not just to individuals, but to portions of society, entire societies, you know, are we, is the, the kind of protesting on the streets and the um, the, the civil unrest that we're seeing at the moment, is that actually a symptom of a society that has not been looking after itself and not been focusing on gratitude?
1: Well, in many ways it is, because it's also a society that um, is so fragmented, right? I think we've all had that individual experience, right? So, you know, for so much of my life, I kind of denied myself any other being other than, okay, I'm this like serious, crazy, achievement-oriented person. I denied myself the fact that I'm also an artist and really creative. You know, I started painting four years ago. I've wanted to paint my whole life. My whole life it's been calling me, but I never let myself because that had nothing to do with my achievement of happiness, right, and success. Well, I denied that part of myself. I denied the part of myself that um, was someone who would enjoy yoga. I denied the part of myself that is actually someone who likes to sit around for a couple hours and do nothing because my identity wasn't that. And I say that because so many of us individually fragment ourselves in this way, and it's really hard to live life in a fragmented way. And a societal level, we've so we've we've been so fragmented, we are losing the sense that we're all one, yeah. right that we actually are all connected. And so much of what's going on and what has been going on is a symptom of that, right? That we actually see ourselves as very different and very separate and it's all about conflict, whereas actually, there's so much more that we have in common. So it's the same to me, the symptom of this fragmentation that's individual um, and societal, because I think a huge part of self-care and self-compassion is embracing our full selves. And, you know, I taught, I teach self-compassion a lot and it's, it's, it's a difficult, but life-changing skill. And, you know, uh, uh, many people, including myself misunderstand it. I used to think that self-compassion means like, Oh, however I am is great. Like, you know, I never have to change. And I hated that because, you know, I wanted to grow and improve and I didn't want to be a lazy sloth. Well, that's a, that's not what self-compassion is. Self-compassion is simply um, cultivating a kind of friendship with yourself. It's treating yourself as you would a friend. It's approaching yourself from a place of I'm a human being. I am not perfect. And I want to, I want to treat myself in a way that reduces suffering. That's what self-compassion is. And, I think a huge part of that practice is to embrace all of ourselves, including the mistakes, including the perfection and the imperfection, including the wonderful things about us. Because the more we do that, the less energy we have to waste fighting with ourselves, the energy we have to waste um, denying who we are in some part of ourselves, the less energy we waste beating ourselves up for all the mistakes we've made. And then we can actually move forward and we then we have that energy to improve and grow. And I think it's really the same with society. Right, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge mistakes. Um, but when we do that with compassion, we don't get stuck in self-flagellation. We don't get stuck in the harshness. We actually acknowledge, and then we have the ability to learn and move forward. And so that's something, that's something that's been really difficult for me to watch with everything that's going on. Is there isn't a lot of compassion and. and I understand there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of anger that's been there for a long time. But I think that until we start to look at ourselves and each other with compassion, it's hard to move forward because then we just get stuck in the, you did this, I did this, I screwed up this, you did this. Um, So I think self-compassion is a really powerful self-care skill that also allows us to learn and get better.
0: There is um I mean this is one of the things that I find very draining about this kind of political debate yeah. and why I try and switch off from it as much as possible. And it's kind of there's the argument goes a little bit like this is I'm from I'm on this side of the argument and I think this. And then I'm on the other side of the argument and I think this. But because we're on these two opposite sides, we have to disagree. We always yes. have to disagree. We must. And that's where friction and conflict comes from. And you can't progress like that. You know, this is why politics becomes so dirty. It becomes so um, unhappy. And I think that gets, well, that energy again gets reflected backwards and forwards, doesn't it? I mean, how do you, how do you teach people who are so stuck or connected to an identity to actually let go of that a little bit, to be kind to yourself and to open yourself up to.
1: It's it's really, really hard, but I'll tell you, um, It is possible, but it has to start within, right? The thing that, you know, one of the things, one of the other huge lessons is that the way we treat others is rooted in the way we treat ourselves. So we have to do the inner work first. You know, this whole time that I mentioned that I thought I was this, you know, great mom because I just cared about my daughter and not about myself or my team because I was a martyr leader. Well, I wasn't as compassionate with other people as I was not patient. I expected perfection because I expected it in myself. And if someone showed imperfection, I treated them very harshly. So before I can show compassion to someone else, including people who disagree with me, I have to learn to practice compassion within. And this is perhaps, again, one of the really huge mindset shifts is that these skills that we're talking about, gratitude, acceptance, self-care stuff, we have to start the work with ourselves. We really do. We cannot, you know, when I work with leaders, I tell them all the time. Because the, the, the instinct is, oh, okay, this is wonderful. Let me go express gratitude to others. No, you have to yeah. practice gratitude first. Let me be more compassionate. No, you have to treat yourself first. Because when we do that work, we, we gain the perspective that we then bring to others. And so, you know, I've often said this, like, if I could take every leader in every country and put them through my self-compassion class, I think we would be in a different place. Most of that class has nothing to do with others. It's all about themselves. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but it is so, well, I've done enough psychological research, but it is so, I don't think you need to be one to realize that the anger and the resentment and the disagreeing. So, so much of that is rooted in, like, how we feel about ourselves, right? And then we take it out in these ways. And so if we could become more compassionate, if we could embrace ourselves and our mistakes, if we could treat ourselves in a kinder way, naturally, we will do that for others. And I think that is some of our most important work.
0: Is there a danger, though, that when you become so compassionate to other people, you lose your kind of necessary assertiveness? Mm that you need to progress? How do you, how do you get that balance right between, you know, keeping the, keeping the kind of confidence and the, yeah. you know, the anger sometimes that you need to, you know, especially in times like this, you know, pe- people say things like, um, there's a very common phrase. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Right. So right. how do you harness, harness that kind of assertiveness and anger that you need to change things to get yeah. a result to progress perhaps with that compassion and the, uh,
1: well, you know, it's one of, the, one of the things to remember is that um, as human beings, we can hold more one emotion, more than one emotion at a time. I think it's really important to remember that, that we can feel, have a heavy heart and still have hope, that we can be angry and still be compassionate, um, that the world can seem overwhelming and we can still feel there's a way forward. I think it's so important to not reduce ourselves to one emotion and like robotic in, in a way. And the thing is, our emotions, um, we don't have much control of them when they arise, right? And one of the things that I think is so essential and people really get surprised when I say this is, you know I say that emotional health and happiness is not about feeling good all the time. It is actually about learning how to embrace all of our emotions, including the difficult ones and the sad ones and the great ones and everything in between, because that's embracing our humanity. And so I think that we can be angry At the system we can be angry at people who do awful things and we can also at the same time have compassion for Well, why are people acting that way, right? Because remember compassion does not mean I say that whatever it is you do is okay it just means I Understand that you're a human being and you're struggling with something and I don't want to increase that struggle, right? And uh, you know, I think it's hard, it's, it was really hard for me, it sometimes still is, and it's hard for people to not see that as excusing behavior, but it really isn't. It's just recognizing the humanity in each other, right? And recognizing that we're all struggling. And uh, if we can come from that place, so we can be angry, and we can also re- realize that the other people are struggling with something that is causing them to act this way. Well, that creates an opportunity for them to change. That actually, you know, I, I always use this example, like, you know, if you're doing something and and if you had a really bad day and you, you you say something and you do something and the person starts yelling at you, do you feel motivated to be better? No. You don't. You want to close up, you want to hide, you wanna snap back at that person. But if the person looks at you and says, Listen, I know you've had a really horrible day, I'm sorry, all of us kind of like be startled and in that place of compassion we have some space to actually witness our own behavior and most of us in that situation go oh crap i'm so sorry i've had the worst day and i just snapped at you and so it's just um this is hard stuff chris right this is like higher level transcendence of all of our human instincts and really um and this is why i call all of these skills because they don't come naturally for most of us they're not easy but all they require is our practice. And, um, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to find, it's hard to look at someone you disagree with so passionately and look at them as a human being and recognize that they're struggling with something. But it's only if we do that, that there's any opportunity for moving forward.
0: And that's an interesting point, actually. What, what if you are someone who is so has such a strong ego and you know, so kind of no self-awareness almost, or no kind of awareness of your inner processes, mm-hmm. and you you just think that like I'm angry and it's your fault, I'm happy and it's your fault, and that you know everything's falling apart and it's your fault, your fault, your fault, mm-hmm. and you can't see that actually it's your energy that's that's driving this, it's your response to stimuli, it's your response to mm-hmm. the outside world. How how can you help someone like that to you know work? Yeah.
1: Out? It's a, you know, I, I, one of the questions I get very, very often when I do these talks at like companies or teams is, you know, I have my, my colleague is just an ass, you know, like yeah. that person, right? Um, how do, and the question is, you know, how do I show them they're an ass? Well, the short answer is you can't because, um, that person is not in a place where they're willing to look within, um. Uh, There's a, uh, the answer turns out to be the practice of compassion. Um, and this is in my book, I literally have a section called advanced kindness. This is advanced skill because this means that, you know, when someone is an ass or someone's really nasty to us, we feel angry, we feel that rise of a response, right? That's where it's like the guttural, it's the monkey brain, right? It's just like the core, right? We want to go back on the attack. If we can practice compassion in that moment, and I actually have this practice that I'll share, um, I think it's in my book, I'm not sure. Um, I call it the lens of compassion. So, uh, someone is being nasty to you, or someone is rude, right? Instead of reacting, which is a completely normal human thing, can you just like acknowledge, yes, I'm angry, annoyed, whatever. And then can you just, in your head, make up a story of what this person might be struggling with that is causing them to act this way and really make it up? And when I do these workshops, I actually have people, teams, make up stories, right? Like, oh, his wife called him this morning and she got a flat tire and then his kid threw up on him and his boss was, yet So like people make up really like dramatic stories. But the point is, when we get to that place of thinking, what might this person be struggling with, even if it's made up, we are practicing compassion. We're not going to react. We may just let it go or we may, I'm not saying we need to take on their attitude, but we may just be like, let it go. Very often, again, if we don't react towards that person or don't yell back at them or don't preach to them, if that is something, if in that place, place of compassion, many of those people will become more aware. Because the thing is, they're not acting that way because they want to. They're acting that way because of some deep inner pain that they're experiencing, and they just can't see it. So I think that's an important thing to think about. The other thing that, um, and this is a hard truth to just accept, but there isn't anyone else we can change. There just isn't. And I, you know, I would say, hi, I'm Natalie, and I'm a recovering fixer. Like I used to think I could fix people and I could change, like for the better, right? Like out of love, but. We really can't. And, you know, preaching to people or yelling at people or it doesn't work unless they're in a place where they're open to receiving it and we can't get them there. Right. But we can help them get there through compassion and also by sharing how we are practicing. One of the things I really encourage everyone is you have to start these practices with yourself. But then if you could share how you're practicing, not you should do this, but hey, this is something I'm practicing and it's helping me, because we're all connected, because all of our feelings are so contagious, well, it'll spread to other people. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life since I began to, and again, it's not that I have it perfectly. I get angry. I snap. You just ask my family. Okay, this is a skill. It doesn't mean you get perfect at it. But I cannot tell you how many times where instead of reacting with anger or snapping at the person, I just kind of let it go and said something like, wow, you must be really having an awful day. How many times either in that moment, Chris, or like an hour later, a day later, they come to me and they're like, I was being such an ass. I am so sorry. I'm really sorry. Because my compassion gave them the space to have the awareness without feeling threatened. And when we don't feel threatened, we actually have the brain goes into a place where you can have a little bit more awareness.
0: So almost sometimes like the most compassionate thing you can do is to do nothing at all mm. and just kind of take a step back and just say, I'm going to give you a moment now.
1: Yes. But again, yes, except we need to get to a place where we, we are not at the same time going, Oh my God, I hate you. You're awful. Okay. Yeah. Because again, feelings are, we're connected. All of our feelings are felt by other people, whether they know what to call it or not. And so the practice is to really feel like, wow, he's being an ass, but wow, he must've had a really bad day to actually get to that place of feeling compassion. And then from that place, you can just do that because then the person will feel it. Right. And there's such a, um, I forget, this is a, I forget what book I was reading this in. I wish I could have remembered, but it's a, a really powerful story. It's about, um, it's in Japan, and this young man—he's studying Aikido, which is a martial art where you do not attack; you can only protect yourself to yeah. use it. So you have to be attacked first. And he writes about this incident. He's on a bus, and I think I've, story,
0: I've, I've heard this story. from uh, yeah, yeah. Jack Cornfield. It's a. It's it's not.
1: It's not from him. It comes from. I think it's a Japanese. Yeah. Um, sage, but. To me, it's a brilliant explanation of what we're talking about because there's a drunk that gets on the bus and he is horrible and violent and just awful. And this young man, all he's thinking about is, I just need him to hit me once. And then I'm going to hit back, use my Aikido and put him down because he's like kind of endangering people on the bus. He's coming really close to this couple and he's like out of control. And then there's this older man on the bus, older Japanese man. And he starts talking to this drunk. And he is completely peaceful, and he starts asking him questions like, "Um, how was your day? And, you know, first the guy is completely belligerent. He's like, I'm going to kill it, you know. And then he, the more he asks him questions, he's like, oh, you must have had a really hard day. Tell me about it. After a while, they're sitting next to each other, and the drunk breaks down, and he tells him that his wife wants to divorce him, and he's in debt, and he feels horrible about himself. And the whole situation is diffused, obviously. And, you know, the last scene in the story is, you know, the drunk's head is on the old man's lap and he's kind of brushing his hair. And the young guy with the Aikido, he's going, oh my God, like all all I was ready to do, I was so excited to use my Aikido. And this guy's compassion just completely disarmed him. And I think that's a beautiful representation. And the thing is, I'll tell you, even when I tell this story, like there's a part of my brain that's like, okay yeah like that's a story that's ridiculous that would never work you know our ego wants to be really loud it's like no no what are you talking about if we did that everyone would be a racist and violent and because it's easier to not practice compassion it is easier to react it is easier to get angry those are more um like animalistic behaviors you know one of my favorite favorite um quotes and this i don't i've never found the attribution but your brain is a terrible master, but a great servant. And I think it is so, so true about who we are as humans. You know, our brain, um, it's kind of wild. Okay. And it's kind of crazy. And you know, just pay attention to your brain for a little bit. Like it goes between one thought to another, everything is good. Then everything's bad. I hate you. It's just like this, you know, people call it the monkey brain, right? I like to think of our brain as a child, you know, like a young child, right? Well, So we can't just follow all our instincts. We can't just go along like it would be crazy. But if we can focus our brain, if we can give it a practice, if we can ask it to practice something, it becomes a really great servant. Um, You know, There's a huge research right now in neuroplasticity shows we can really train our brain to do amazing things. And so I find that that to me is kind of a really core principle because yeah, it's easier to react with anger. It's easier to want to fight it's easier to like want to go yell at that person But if we can practice compassion We are going to be more successful and the practice of compassion and first and foremost It's going to protect our emotional well-being from letting this anger in and that's a really beautiful place to start But it's a higher level practice. It's asking our brain to be a servant and not a master
0: that's it's a it's a big ask actually because you were talking about being attached to your suffering earlier on and you know we do it becomes we become almost institutionalized in this this place of suffering like you were saying You, you become you know i've i've experienced it myself people have offered me opportunities to get unstuck and i've made excuses to stay where i am it's like well i I can't because I haven't got any money or I haven't, you know, I'm not fit enough to go and jog around Mm -hmm. the block or I'm, you know, I don't have time or Mm -hmm. all of these things. How do we nurture the self-awareness to Mm. actually, you know, say, hang on a minute, I am making excuses and Mm -hmm. these thoughts, they're not, they're not me. it's just my brain, you know, running out of control. Yeah.
1: Well, Mm -hmm. a couple of thoughts on that. Well, um, About our thoughts. One of, um, my absolute favorite teachers who I've never met in person, um, although we, he's done some programming with my publisher, is Michael Singer. Um, and his books, the two books that I recommend probably more than my own book is um, The Surrender Experiment and Untethered Soul. Um, There's such wisdom. And he writes, I think it's in Surrender Experiment, that his spiritual awakening came when he realized that he is not the one who says his thoughts. He's the one who hears them. Yeah. And that is a really, really, really powerful realization to realize that our thoughts happen just like our feelings, but there's that inner wisdom, inner witness that can have a choice of what to do with a thought. Sometimes we follow it, sometimes we let it go. And the skill that we need to use, this is the skill of acceptance, right? What is the skill of acceptance? Well, the skill of acceptance is learning how to see how things are and how we feel with clarity, which is all about facts, yeah. instead of judgment, which is about should or, tr- you know, dramatic stories. And to separate those and then to use that as our foundation to say, given how I feel, clarity, given how things are, facts, what's the next best thing that I can do to honor this moment, to honor myself, to honor other people involved? And so just to take one of your examples, right? Um, a, a, a friend asks you to go jogging, right? So. The brain goes, "Oh my god, I'm not fit enough. Oh my god, I'm gonna die if I jog around the block. The last time I jogged, I was out of breath. I hate jogging. Like, I am never gonna." So that's that's the trauma. That's a drama. Or the brain goes, "Well, um, I should already be jogging, and I haven't done it, and so like I don't want to." The should, right? So all of that is the dr- that's the brain going at its thing. Okay, but what if you pull that back and say? Okay, I acknowledge that, but I have a choice what to do with those thoughts. Let me not go along with them. What are the facts? Well, the fact is my friend is asking me to go jogging, and I'm nervous because I haven't been jogging in a while. That's what you know, okay? Oh, the other, uh, the other reaction I think in that situation for many of us would be like, but I haven't jogged, and my friend is going to make fun of me. My friend's going to be so disappointed, and then he's going to tell it. Well, part of acceptance is, do you know that your friend is thinking that? Absolutely not. So that can't go into clarity. That's all like, so it's also about not putting thoughts into other people's heads. So if you do that practice of acceptance and you separate your dramatic story or what the other people are thinking from the facts, which is my friend is asking me to go jogging. And I'm a little nervous about going jogging. Okay, that's clarity. What is the next best thing I can do to honor this moment? Well, I don't have a formula, but... If you ask yourself that question in that moment, you may say, well, the next best thing, I think I should give it a try because it sounds kind of fun. Or you can say, you know, let me like do it on my own a couple of times and then I'll go with my friend. Right. But all of that acceptance gives us the could. It's the possibility. Yeah. The judgment, the drama gets us stuck in the should, which is a trap. Right. And so this is where the skill of acceptance is so powerful. And again, it's work, it's inner work, it's getting honest with ourselves. But if we practice it, we learn how to connect to that inner witness and to realize, wow, all of these reasons and all of these thoughts, I have a choice what to do with them. And I'm going to just pick the ones that have clarity that are based in fact and the rest I'm going to leave over here or they can be here, but I'm going to do the thing anyway. And it's incredibly powerful. I mean, and the opposite, by the way, talking about suffering. So in my book, I I talk about the valley of suffering. The valley of suffering is the distance between how things are and how we've decided they should be. And so many of us create this, get stuck in this valley of suffering, right? Like my friend's asking me to go jogging, but I should have already been jogging or, uh, you know, I should be in better shape. So suffering, right? We get stuck there. Instead of saying, my friend's asking me to go jogging and I'm not in great shape. Okay, what's the next best thing I can do? It gives us the possibility. And this valley of suffering is really a way for us to really narrow the path to feeling good. It's, it really, it creates all these conditions. And only under these conditions, we're gonna be happy. Only under these conditions, we're gonna feel good. Yeah. And instead, if we practice acceptance, we realize that We have much more space in which to find possibility. Like the path is much more open because the obstacles are really in the thoughts that we have, not outside in the real world.
0: It's funny. um, A quote I always seem to bring up in podcasts at the moment is um, Byron Katie. She she says, um, life gets easier when I stop arguing with reality. Yes. You know, and it's just this whole idea of acceptance is, I think acceptance and letting go go hand together you know just
1: and also just but just understand for me what's really important is that acceptance is not passive yeah. it's not giving up it's not saying whatever happens happens it's simply looking at things as they are letting go of how we think they should be or our preconceived ideas about them but it's not letting go of our ability to make choices which i think it used to turn me off a lot i didn't understand acceptance so it's really learning to meet each moment as it is ourselves as we are in that moment versus how we should be or how it's supposed to be because when we do that we get to make a choice we actually get in the driver's seat of life versus you know being stuck or going backwards so i think it's a really power it's a really really important practice but i think it's really important to recognize those two steps of it first is is that letting go of our preconceived judgments and meeting ourselves and reality as it is and then second, asking ourselves, okay, given how things are and how I feel, what's, what's the next thing I can do? And not how can I fix everything in the world forever, but the next best thing.
0: Yeah. Is there a danger, um, this is something I've thought about a few times, that we, we introduce this kind of pause and rather than reacting, we try to accept the situation as it is. Is there a danger that we just become numb to everything? Mm-hmm. And you know, there are times when, yeah, we need to be angry. And we, yeah. should be, we should be reacting. And, you know, th- this situation is awful. And of we course. should, you know, we should be fired up. Whereas if we're just like, yeah, okay, this, things are bad. But how do we do yeah. it?
1: Well, and this is the awesome. thing, right? So acceptance is not about denying our emotions. It's about acknowledging our emotions, right? So, um, and this is why I'm so insistent always on saying, it's seeing how you are and how you feel with clarity and how things are. So clarity could be, wow, I'm really angry right now okay, that's clarity, or I have a lot of fear, or I'm doubting myself all the time. Once we acknowledge our difficult feelings, we then have a choice of how to move forward. The problem is when we don't acknowledge them, right? The problem that, you know, I've been talking a lot this week to folks just around my own fear of, you know, who am I as a white woman to do anything about racism, right? Or, um, wow, I have this platform. I don't know if I'm doing the right things. I don't know if I'm doing enough. And I got really buried in this fear this weekend. I got, I, I just I, I was so overwhelmed by it. I just wanted to hide. I just wanted to get really small and hide. And I made a choice. I made a choice to acknowledge that I have fear, which is part of acceptance, to feel the fear, and then to say, okay, I have this fear. But what else do I feel? Well, I also feel called to do something and I feel a sense of bigger responsibility. Okay, what is the next best thing I can do? For me, the next best thing was I want to tell people I have the fear. I actually want to tell my huge community that I have fear, but I, I'm choosing to take action anyway. it has been really powerful. And so the thing there is not to deny our strong emotions, is to actually let ourselves experience them fully, but then recognize that In emotions in a way are information. It's not the finality. Like I'm angry. Yeah. Okay. What does that do? Right. So feel the feelings, acknowledge your difficult emotions. In fact, and I think many of my teachings, this is what people find surprising and powerful is I, the thing I said about emotional health and well-being is not about feeling good all the time. It's experiencing all of our human emotions to their full capacity. Most of us, by the way, Chris, spend our lives trying not to feel what we call negative feelings, right? Mm -hmm. We try very, very hard to numb ourselves. Netflix, wine, social media, whatever. So acceptance is the opposite. Acceptance is actually feeling all the feels, but then using that as a starting point, not the final point. And then separating feelings from this is what I really feel versus, wow, this is a really dramatic story I've told myself. And there is that difference.
0: Um, One of the reasons I contacted you originally was how we can use the kind of practice of happiness, of gratitude, self-care, all the things that you talk about to overcome these kind of obstacles Mm. of self-doubt. You know, when when we kind of say, well, what if I fail? What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not worthy enough? You know, all these kind of things that stop us, you know, and this attachment as well to suffering. Um, if we acknowledge the fear, is that, can we use that as fuel to change ourselves, change our situation and the world? Yeah.
1: So there's a couple, um, I actually do a lot of workshops and a lot of talks on how to transcend fear. Um, and, uh, there's a couple of skills required. The first is the skill of acceptance. We really have to feel it and be honest about it and also get really honest about what the fear is. Right. So when we say, for example, um, uh, I don't think I'll be good enough. That's actually not what we're afraid of. What we're afraid of is other people will not think I'm good enough, right? So we actually accepting an emotion means really under being honest about what the fear is. And that is absolutely the necessary first step. But then um, the, the skill that really helps us to shift is from what I call fear to love, which is compassion or excitement or dedication or whatever that word may be that's um, close to you, is to use the bigger why right, is to connect to our sense of purpose for this thing about which we have fear. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about connecting to your why. And for me, what is really essential is that we do it um, in the day-to-day, in this present moment, not in any kind of abstract way, right? So how do we connect to our bigger why? Well, um, for most of us, we experience, we connect to our sense of meaning when we connect what we are doing to how does it positively impact someone else, right? How does it help someone else? How does it help us get better at our craft so that it positively impacts someone else. That's the intersection. That's where we find the bigger why. So after you've acknowledged your fear and gotten really honest about what the fear really is, the bridge between fear and taking action is connecting to your bigger why. So um, one of the things that I talk a lot to folks about is public speaking, right? I, I didn't know this, but apparently it's the number one thing people are fearful is public speaking. Um, And I'm a freak. I just need to say this. So I love public speaking. I actually don't know what it's like to be nervous, but I happen to be someone who can also teach it, which is rare. Uh, Usually if you can do something easily, it's hard to teach. But um, so I do a lot of talks and work with people on public speaking. And so once we identify the fear, the fear is usually what will people think of me, right? Will I be judged? Then I say, okay, I want you to connect to your bigger why. Why? Why? Why are you giving this talk? And the answers are always about like, well, I've I've done a lot of this research and I think people really should know about it. It can impact their lives better. Or um, if I do this presentation, I think my team will learn more. Right. And it's amazing what happens, Chris, when we connect to our bigger why, it becomes bigger than the fear. The fear, by the way, will not go anywhere. That's another thing to recognize. It's never going anywhere. Ever. The fear, I am someone I teach this. My fear is right here. My fear, I have, and we have many of them, right? One of my fears is um, that I'm not saying anything original. You know, uh, I have this fear all the time, right? Um, wow, like I'm teaching all these people, but am I saying anything unique? Like, haven't the sages said all of this? Like, who am I, right? Like, the fear stays, but when we connect to our bigger why, it becomes bigger than the fear. And that is what inspires our action. And this is so powerful and so simple and yet so challenging because if we don't do the inner work of acceptance we'll never really witness our fear we'll just let it consume us and so acceptance is a really important prerequisite to then connect to your bigger why and then your bigger why pulls you through
0: fantastic well i'm gonna wrap up there um i just wanted to talk about your book quickly it's called happier now isn't it and um, does that talk about your story as well? Do you, is it, it
1: does. So it's, um, I'm really, really proud of the book. So the first half of the book is my story from yeah. the Russian refugee to the heights of American success and the downfall and then the journey since. And then the second half of the book are the five happier skills, gratitude, acceptance, kindness that we talked about. And I think there's something like 37 one minute practices of how to practice the skills. So it's half and half, half the story and half the how to.
0: Fantastic, and if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place to start?
1: Happier.com couldn't be simpler.
0: Fantastic, that's that's great. Well, thank you so much for that. I think um, I think it it kind of boils down to you know to change the world, we have to change ourselves, and it has to be a nurturing energy, I think, behind that. So
1: we have to do it kindly. The yeah. only thing I would say is it not changing ourselves with any kind of harshness. We have to learn to treat ourselves with the same love and compassion we want from other people. And then we can change the world.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, Thanks for um, having me. Yeah, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. It's I've learned a, a great deal. So
1: Well, you're, you ask really, I mend my gratitude. You ask really thoughtful questions. So <laughs> it gives me access to share more useful, useful things.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's, That's great. Wonderful. Alright, right, well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, Yeah, there's a lot to learn there. When I originally reached out to Natalie, it was all about overcoming the kind of obstacles we put in our own way, the self-doubt and the kind of fear in our minds. And that was the conversation I was planning on having. But then the world changed around us and the conversation needed to change accordingly. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Check out Natalie's book, Happier Now, it's on Amazon and all good booksellers. And also check out my book, Shine Manifesto, Um, it's uh, it's on Amazon and it's worth a read if you are interested in any of the stuff I'm writing about, talking about, tweeting about, Instagramming about. I'm uh, Chris Brock, writer on Instagram, Chris Brock on Twitter. Find me wherever you want, email me, message me, uh, chrisbrock.uk. I'm out there, not hard to find, so track me down, and in the meantime, stay safe and look out for one another. You know, these are difficult times and we need to listen and understand more than ever before we start reacting and raging and taking sides and having opinions, because ultimately there needs to be some sense of justice in what is going on in the world and the way we treat other people. And you know the world around us as a whole. So there we go. Those are my thoughts for the day. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. So.